Well, we're continuing our series uh, in the letter to the Colossians today. Uh, We're up to chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. So if you have a Bible, open it up to that um, part of God's Word and uh, keep, keep the Bible open during the sermon. You'll be able to follow along. So Colossians, uh, it's a letter to teach us that we are complete in Christ, that everything we need to experience God and to grow as Christians, it's all ours in Christ. And we're continuing that theme today. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Okay, let's hear God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to uh, regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. Well, before we uh, unpack this, let's um, ask God for understanding. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we know this is your word, and so we ask, Lord, that you would give us an attitude of humility and eagerness to learn from you. Uh, We pray, Father, that uh, your word would, your spirit would work uh, with your word like a, like a sword uh, that would pierce the very depths of our heart, that you would expose the things that are uh, out of line with your word, where we are resisting your authority. And we pray, Lord, that you would change us uh, by your spirit, that we would live out who we are in Christ, that our lives would be all for his praise and his glory. And we ask it in his name. Amen. In my simple and perhaps ignorant opinion, I think the dumbest sport is competitive walking or race walking as it's officially known. Not only does it look absolutely ridiculous, but uh, from the couple of times I've actually tried to watch it on the Olympics, it seems to be the number one sport in which you're likely to be disqualified. Uh, Because as the walkers are walking on the race, you can see there's these officials scattered all along the course, constantly scrutinizing everyone's little step, and they seem so eager to step out on that course, hold up their little red card, and disqualify competitors from the race. Now, I did a little bit of research about this to see what was going on, and it actually turns out I'm right that disqualifications are a routine thing, even at the elite level. And uh, some of you may even remember from um, the Olympic Games uh, held in Sydney in the year 2000, 
when uh, an athlete, uh, if you can call her that, but uh, Jane Seville, a walking uh, competitor, she was competing there in front of her home crowd. She entered into the stadium. The finish line was in sight. She was in the gold medal position. All of Australia was cheering her on. All of her dreams were about to come true. And yet before she made it to that finish line, an official stepped out in front of her, holding up a red card, and disqualified her from the race. She was out. According to that umpire, Jane didn't compete according to the rules, and so she was out, and there was nothing she could do about it. All that hard work, all gone. Do you know it's not only races, though, and sporting events in which you're likely to have someone try to disqualify you. Uh, you will find these kind of umpires everywhere, even in the church. And these umpires, often lurking in churches, they're not official umpires like in the Olympics. They are self-appointed umpires. And uh, they have their own rules for what they think a Christian is. And they'll be very quick to hold up their little red card and, and try to disqualify anyone who doesn't play according to their rules. And this passage in Colossians is saying to us today, watch out for self-appointed umpires. See, there's two commands in this passage. One, in verse 16, says, let no one judge you. Verse 18 says, let no one disqualify you. In other words, watch out for the self-appointed umpires. You see, we're in a section of this letter where Paul is teaching the Colossians uh, how to grow to maturity in Christ. And this section, it started in chapter 2, verse 6, with the summary statement, which, where Paul lays out the heart of how you grow as a Christian. He says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. But before Paul then goes on to show how that works in practice, how you walk in Christ, the first thing he wants to do is to make sure that, that the Colossians avoid some dangers. So last week we looked at the first danger, which was the captors, people who would take them captive with hollow and deceptive philosophy. This week, though, he wants to warn them of the umpires, the self-appointed umpires who threatened to disqualify the Colossians and to stop them from walking in Christ. And as we'll see, these umpires, they're still prevalent today. And so all of us here in this room need to watch out. Watch out for the self-appointed umpires who will seek to disqualify you. So let's have a look who they are. Uh, the first one, it's in verse 16 to 17. And uh, the, the uh, danger here, it comes from those who will tell you that you're not strict enough. You're not strict enough. So look at verse 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here we can see the Colossians, they had uh, people insisting that to be a Christian, you had to keep these uh, food laws and observe certain religious days from the Old Testament. And these were things that God actually put in place in the Old Covenant. 
Uh, prior to the coming of Christ, and if you go to Leviticus 11 and 23, uh, don't do that now, but when you get home, uh, read about all of the regulations that God put in place, which were all identity markers for his people. Marked them out. And so they had all those clean and unclean laws. You know, foods that were considered clean, foods that they could eat, and other ones that they had to avoid, the things that were unclean. Uh, they had holy days, like the Day of Atonement. But see, when Jesus finally came along, all of those laws, all of those regulations no longer were binding. Uh, they were no longer the identity markers for God's people. And as Paul explains, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So imagine you had a friend um, coming around to your house uh, late in the afternoon one day and you could tell they were approaching because you could see their shadow moving across the front room. And so as you make your way into the, uh, the front room there to greet them, now it would be very strange for you to begin talking to their shadow and trying to shake the shadow's hand and maybe even offering the shadow a glass of water. I mean, that could get very messy. See, the whole point of the shadow, the shadow points you to the reality. And the reality in that case is your friend. And that's what Paul is saying about the Old Testament regulations, the food laws, the holy days. These were all a shadow of Christ. They pointed the people to Jesus. And so it's a good way of thinking about how to understand the Bible. See, Jesus stands as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament casting his shadow back over the pages of history. And so if you were one of God's people back in the Old Testament times, you would be able to look at these uh, food laws and, and uh, the holy days, even the priests, the temple, the sacrifices, all of these things, and what would you see in them? You would see a shadow of Christ. You could see Jesus in these things. And... Uh, just like your friend's shadow pointed you um, to your friend. But in all of these shadows, God was showing his people that the way to relate to him as the holy God, they needed to be made clean. They needed to have their sin atoned for. And that needed to be done by a priest offering a blood sacrifice in the temple on a holy day. See, all of these things, all fulfilled by Christ. Uh, the, all of those things were the shadows. Christ is the substance, as Paul says here. And that's why when Jesus came along, he pronounced all foods clean, because he, the reality, was finally here. We now are clean by being in him. So our identity as God's holy people, it's no longer marked out by these external regulations, but our identity is marked out by Christ himself. He is our identity. Now, at the time, Jewish people who became Christians, they accepted this fact gladly. They accepted Christ. They had the reality. That was fantastic. Now, many Jewish people in that time, they still lived according to the, the, uh, these food regulations, um, not because they thought that those things were binding, but because... They didn't want to offend their mother-in-law, for example, who, who was still a Jew. Uh, they didn't want to upset extended family, and so that's no big deal. They could do that. They were free to do that. 
However, there were always some people in Paul's day who just could not let go of these regulations as having some binding force, even for Christians. Uh, they, they just couldn't let go of it. And to make it even worse, they turned these regulations into legalistic rules where they went around saying to even Gentiles, unless you keep these food laws, unless you observe these holy days, God will not accept you. And so whenever they met the Gentile Christians, such as these ones in Colossae, here were some people trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. But these legalists were saying, no, you don't qualify. This is what Paul means by saying that they were passing judgment. This is a dangerous false teaching, legalism. Uh, This is an attack on the gospel because the assumption behind this teaching was that Jesus isn't enough to make you right with God, that for God to accept you, it, it was based in part upon you keeping certain rules. That's the issue that Paul is dealing with. That's what he means by saying, let no one pass judgment on you. Now, uh, for us today, I don't think anyone here has felt judged according to um, these food regulations or certain holy days. I'm pretty sure no one has felt judged by that. So does that mean this verse then has no relevance for us today? No, it does have relevance because even though food issues aren't a problem for us, the issue of legalism, that's still alive and kicking. It's always lurking about the church. But it's a false teaching, a false teaching that can threaten or can derail you. Uh, Do you know there will always be people around who have the extra rules that they think you must obey in order to be, listen, a real Christian. A real Christian. They have these extra laws. But this is what legalism is. The legalist says you're not a real Christian unless you keep these extra rules. And so, for example, they will say things like uh, you're not really accepted unless you use the right Bible translation unless you vote for the right political party, unless you wear the correct clothes to church. Uh, The legalist is known for turning issues of freedom into binding laws and then judging other people according to those laws. Now, I've seen this in in many different ways. I've seen it with alcohol. Uh, You know, alcohol is is abused in, in many places, which is bad, it's wrong. Uh, And so some people look at the abuse that goes on with alcohol and they decide, well, anyone who touches alcohol then is doing wrong. And then they go around judging anyone, even if that person consumes in moderation. That's a form of legalism. I've seen this happen to, to women who wear makeup and dress in nice clothes. The legalist comes along, no, you can't do that. I've seen this with families who have felt judged for sending their children to a state school. I've seen this, I know Christians who have been judged recently for getting the vaccine and others for choosing not to get the vaccine. See, these are all issues of freedom. 
This is, these are issues where God has left us free. The legalist wants to turn them into binding rules and then judge according to those rules. But this verse says, let no one pass judgment on you. That means don't base your approval on what other people think of you. Don't submit to these rules that God has not put in place. And the reason you don't base your approval on what someone else thinks of you is because of the gospel. Because in Christ you already have the only approval that actually matters. You have God's approval. If you are trusting in Christ, then you have been united to Christ, which means when God looks at you, he sees you with the record of Jesus himself. Perfect. Okay? Whether you keep extra rules or not, that doesn't make any difference to your standing with God, which is complete in Christ. And so united to Jesus, you actually have the same standing with the Father that Jesus himself has. God's verdict of you, if we want to talk about a judgment, God's verdict of you, if you are in Christ, is the same verdict that he pronounced on his own son when he said about Jesus, you are my son, whom I love with you I am well pleased. That's how God looks at you if you're in Christ. He sees Christ's perfect record as yours. And so don't let these legalists tell you otherwise. Don't let these legalists make you feel that you don't measure up unless you do these extra things. That's an attack on the gospel. That's why Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. So that's the first danger. The second danger of these self-appointed umpires, uh, if the first one says you're not strict enough, the second one says you're not spiritual enough. You're not spiritual enough. And so that's in verses 18 to 19. Let's have a look at those verses again. Uh, Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. See, now we see that the Colossians had another um, form of, uh, of a false teacher. Uh, this time, people were insisting on what Paul calls asceticism. Now, what is asceticism? Uh, asceticism is a form of severe self-discipline. Um, one example would be extended fasting. Another example would be some type of harsh treatment of the body. Uh, you've probably um, heard of uh, you know, monks who go around whipping themselves to try to you know, beat themselves into conformity with um, God's standard. Uh, that, that's a form of asceticism. Uh, these people were also worshipping angels, it says, and, and we're not completely sure what that means. Did that mean they were, that angels were the object of their worship? Which seems a little bit unlikely. Or was it that they were claiming to have some experience where they were caught up with angels, worshipping alongside angels? That's probably more likely the case. Um, but either way, Paul says that they based these experiences on visions. They had these, well, they claimed to have these visions, and they were going on and on about them to the Colossians. And it must have sounded very exciting to hear about all this stuff. You know, the Colossians must have been very impressed. 
But at the same time, it was also unsettling for them. Because notice what Paul says, they were insisting. These self-appointed umpires were insisting on these things, saying that you, you have to have them or you're missing out. You're not spiritual enough if you don't have them. Uh, and so the Colossians, they were you know, hearing about all this stuff and they're starting to think, oh, maybe my experience of God is incomplete. Maybe it's lacking. Maybe I haven't really come to know God because I haven't had those visions. I haven't had those experiences. But again, Paul will have none of this. None of it. He says rather than making a person more spiritual, these visions actually make someone less spiritual. They actually just fuel a person with pride. Uh, that's why he says there in verse 18 that they're puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And the problem, because they're insisting, these umpires were insisting on these things, they were really saying to the Colossians, unless you too have these experiences, you are an inferior Christian. And that's what Paul means by saying they were trying to disqualify them. They were saying, you're not spiritual enough. And Paul essentially says that the ones who do that, the ones who insist on these things, they're the ones who are actually disqualified. Because have a look at verse 19. He says about these people, they're actually not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So here Paul is showing us that our experience of God, if we want to experience God, how do we do that? There's only one way. It comes by being united to Christ. And again, Paul gives us a helpful little illustration of union with Christ, a body and a head. Christ is the head, we are the body. How's that for a union? And as, as the head, Jesus, the way Paul is explaining it here, he's showing us how Jesus is the source of spiritual life. He is the way we experience the life-changing fellowship with God. Being united to him, that's how we experience God. It's by faith that we experience God, faith in Christ. And so what happens if you turn from that to these speculative visions or subjective experiences, thinking that those are the things that are going to bring you an experience of God. You know, a deeper one than what you have in Christ, that's actually to let go of the head. And what happens when a body lets go of the head? There's no life anymore. See, that's how dangerous these uh, claims are. Now, again, the details are different for us today. I don't think anyone in this room has felt like they're being disqualified about worshipping angels or um, asceticism. Um, but the underlying problem, it's still alive and kicking. And I've seen it in so many ways. Uh, to give you some examples, um, this is going back a little bit, but when I was in uni, a Christian friend was invited to a Bible study group by another group of Christians. And he came home from that study feeling a little bit apprehensive because the group had told him that he's not a real Christian unless he can speak in tongues. What were they saying to him? They're saying, you're not spiritual to qualify. 
A little bit later in my life, I knew of this guy who uh, was very obsessed with hearing an audible voice of God. And uh, some of the things that he claimed to hear, you've actually got to wonder, was it just his imagination or was it even demonic? Some of the things he claimed, it was very strange. And, And see, that's the thing with it, an audible voice from God. How do you know where it comes from? It's completely subjective. It's speculative. And so you don't know where it comes from. Now, the real issue, though, with this guy, he was so big on it that he he pushed it on everyone that he could come across. You've got to hear God speaking to you audibly. Otherwise, you don't really know him that well. And uh, his younger brother got so caught up with it uh, that he, his life, he actually got into to strife. He, he lost his way as a Christian because he also got so hung up about hearing this audible voice and he let go of Christ. And there are many more expressions of this danger. Uh, there was a book that came out once uh, that um, had another friend uh, who, 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 who tried to do it uh, this book, this, this bloke, he, he uh, completed a 40-day fast and he wrote about the experience, how wonderful it was, how he experienced God so much in this experience that he wanted everyone else to also have, a, have this same experience of God through a 40-day fast. Now, not everyone can do a 40-day fast. And so what does that say to the person who can't? Or maybe someone has made you feel like You haven't really got to know God that well because you haven't been to the Holy Land and walked in the steps of Jesus, seen the same things that Jesus would have seen. Uh, Perhaps you've been made to feel less of a Christian because you haven't been to Bible college or because you haven't been on a short-term mission trip or some other experience. Look, there's nothing wrong with these things, but you need to understand they can't bring you closer to God than what you already have in Christ. That's the point this text is making. And so don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone make you feel like you're missing out or that you don't know God that well because you haven't had the same experience that they have. And just one another application about this um, passage I actually think we can see a hint of this same danger in some approaches to worship styles. Uh, There seems to be this thinking in some circles that you can only worship God if you use the right formula, uh, with the right style, with the right music, at the right volume. And, uh, do you know, you find this thinking in both traditional and contemporary approaches to worship. You know, whether it's candles and quietness, or smoke machines and uh, coloured lights. Uh, it, it seems to be that there's a mentality that somehow the atmosphere of a worship service is what can bring you a heightened experience of God's presence. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with candles or um, lights. There's nothing wrong with those things. But if you think those things will bring you a closer experience of God than what you have in Christ actually falling into the same danger that Paul is confronting here in this text. And I have heard people say to me about certain churches, oh, you can't worship God at that church. And then if you ask, well, why not? You know, thinking they're going to say, well, because I don't preach the gospel or something like that. No, no, they complain about the worship style. I think, hang on a minute, you're missing the point. 
It's through Christ that we have full access to God. He is the way we can worship. And the music style, yes, yeah, some can be distracting, some can be unhelpful, but it's not, it's not the key, it's not the main thing. It's Christ. He is how we experience God. And so the letter of Colossians, it actually teaches that we've got to measure everything by the gospel. Everything. You know, does this teaching, does this opinion, does this internet article, does this practice help me to focus on Christ? Does it lead me to go, what a wonderful saviour he is? Does this teaching help you appreciate who you are in Christ? Does this teaching uh, help you enjoy the full assurance that you have of God's acceptance through the death and resurrection of his son? Does this teaching encourage you to obey Christ, not to earn his acceptance, but because you already have it? They're the sort of questions we need to be asking about all of these things. See, Paul says, let no one judge you, let no one disqualify you. Don't listen to the self-appointed umpires. Extra rules, extra experiences, they cannot get you closer to God than what you already have in Christ and they cannot enhance your spiritual growth because they actually have no life in themselves. The extra rules, the extra experiences, they have no spiritual life in and of themselves. Christ alone is the source of life. He's the source of spiritual growth. And that actually brings us to this last point in verses 20 to 23. Uh, in these verses, Paul drives his teaching home by showing us how powerless these other approaches are. So have a look at these verses. Uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these two examples that Paul has uh, refuted, you know, the, the approach that says you're not strict enough or you're not spiritual enough, Paul says these are actually expressions of, notice, the elemental spirits of the world. And we came across that, uh, that, that phrase last week. We looked at it briefly. The elemental spirits of the world, it means uh, thinking that's based on the cultural assumptions of the day. Or another way to put it, it's worldly thinking. And so the approach, you're not strict enough, or you're not spiritual enough, we can say that's not God's way of relating to you. That's the world's way of doing it. God's way of relating to you and God's way of growing you as a, as a Christian is by uniting you to Christ and you living out your union with Christ. And verse 23, this is kind of the, um, you know, the final knockout punch <laughs> to these sort of things. Uh, it says that although an extra strict or an extra spiritual approach to life, although it looks really impressive, and it does, it looks impressive, 
wow, look how strict that person is, or wow, look at those experiences. Very impressive, but Paul says it, it can't do anything to change your heart. It can't change you from the inside. Uh, they are of no value, Paul says, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And the flesh there it means our sinful nature. So, you know, all of us have a, a sinful nature where uh, it's a self-centered, self-worshipping, self-seeking bent in our hearts. And we can't change that. We can't change that bent in our hearts by human effort. You know, by, by keeping extra rules or having some extraordinary experience. That's not going to change that sinful bent in our hearts. Uh, can't do it any more than a leopard can change its spots. And the only way that that can be changed, the only way that sinful bent can be changed, it has to die. You're, you need to die and rise again. That's the only way it can change. And here's the wonderful news. That's what you have received the moment you are united to Christ. Because Christ's death and his resurrection, that's yours. By faith. That's why Paul, notice how he starts this section. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, you have died with Christ. When Jesus was on the cross, united to him, that's your death. You've died and risen. You have new life in him. Okay, that, that, that's what's going to change you, his death and resurrection. You, depending on him. Uh, that's what will stop the indulgence of the flesh. And that's what Jesus said with his illustration of the vine and the branches. When you're connected to him, uh, Jesus said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the question from this section is, do you want to overcome sin in your life? Or do you just want to disguise it? Do you want to be free? Or do you just want to be fake? See, it's only Christ who can set you free. Only he can enable you to overcome sin. Anything outside of him, it's powerless. Now, in the next chapter in Colossians, in chapter 3, Paul will show us how to practice life in Christ. He will show us how we can put to death those things that dishonour God and, and bring pain uh, to our relationships and those sort of things. But for now, you need to make sure that you are connected to Christ. Like a, a body to a head. You need to make sure you're connected to him by faith. You need to make sure that you are depending on him and not something else. Okay, Don't depend on other people's approval of you. Don't depend on a record of rule-keeping that you have. Don't depend on some experience in the past. Those things are replacements for Christ. You need Christ himself. And don't let anyone make you feel inferior. Don't let anyone make you feel deficient because you aren't as strict as they claim to be or you haven't had the same experience as they claim to have. Again, they're subtle shifts away from relying on Christ alone. See, this passage, if you look back through these three points, 
this passage shows us there's no substance outside of Christ, there's no life source outside of Christ, and there is no power to change outside of Christ. It's in Him alone. And so the way to live, the way to grow, remain in Him, walk in Him, walk in Him. And we will look at that in more detail in the next chapter.